listeners, on this episode of the Sausage of Science, you'll hear a chapter reading of Lazy, Crazy, and Disgusting, Stigma and the Undoing of Global Health by Alex Brewis and Amber Woodage, and then their original interview with Chris and Kara after the chapter reading. Hello, my name is Alex Brewis, and with Amber Woodage, we wrote Lazy, Crazy, and Disgusting, Stigma and the Undoing of Global Health that was published with Johns Hopkins University Press in 2019. I'm going to read an extract from the book, which is the first part of the introduction. This explains why we wrote the book and what the book's about. Introduction. Emma had never smoked. When she was diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer at the age of 52, she was both angry and confused. She knew women her age had been diagnosed with breast cancer. They had outpourings of warmth and support from families, friends and strangers and had embarked on healing journeys full of Facebook likes, flowers, and home-cooked casseroles. They were hero warriors, applauded for their bravery and strength. She had entered a different and darker cancer world, one festooned with shame and blame instead of survivor ribbons. As she put it, if it's not pink, there's not a lot of sympathy out there for you. She knew others suspected she must have done something wrong, like sneaking cigarettes. After all, Innocent people don't get lung cancer. For a while, Emma made sure to tell everyone, I have cancer, but I never smoked. But it didn't seem to help. Finally, she began to simply say she had cancer in her bones. Then came kindness, compassion, and encouragement. Emma struggled to be seen as worthy of care, to have her illness understood by others as the unfair burden she believed it to be, was created by one of the greatest successes of modern public health, the campaign against tobacco. In the first half of the 20th century, new methods for manufacturing tobacco, the invention of the safety match, and mass media advertising created a new market for smoking. It sold the idea of cigarettes as affordable, accessible, and pleasurable. Movie stars lit up seductively. World leaders puffed as they signed historic deals. Doctors extolled relaxation benefits, lit cigarette in hand. Smoking became the cool, social, modern, sexy, grown-up thing to do. By mid-century, the majority of Americans, Australians and Europeans were smokers. But in the second half of the 20th century, the health consequences of tobacco became clear. The discovery that it causes debilitating lung disease and painful deaths from cancer prompted energetic, sustained public health efforts to push people to quit. Smoking was banned from public places. Tobacco advertising on television and in magazines became heavily controlled. Smoking products were highly taxed. But quitting a nicotine addiction is really, really hard. So public health pulled out the big guns and used stigma to turn public attitudes. By stigma, we mean the process by which people become classified within society as less valuable, less desirable, or unwanted. Public health messages changed tobacco from fragrant to foul, but it wasn't just the smoke that was demonized. The smoker, too, became newly defined as disgusting and unwanted. They became stigmatized, marked as weak and selfish and otherwise morally valueless by their habit. They were recast in the public imagination as villains who were committing the slow murder of those around them with their toxic secondhand smoke. Smokers found themselves the targets of intense judgment and rejection from many around them. People looked at them sideways, refused to kiss them, and instructed them to step outside. In the face of this new and powerful stigma, many smokers found the means to quit, no matter how physically difficult. By the turn of the millennium, public health declared the campaign against tobacco a success. The power of stigma had changed entrenched behaviors, overcome addiction, and saved millions of lives. But this is where the success story of smoking starts to turn sour. And it is where our book about the complex, dangerous dance between stigma and public health begins. Fervent anti-smoking attitudes can harm Emma and others like her. In a world where disgust towards smokers is expected and normal, people find themselves blamed for having illnesses associated with smoking, even if they've never smoked. They endure particularly deep guilt and shame if they actually smoked, and anger at the implication if they didn't. They're treated as exiles among the healthy. Compared to people struggling with 13 other common causes of cancer, not surprisingly, those with lung cancer have the highest level of depression during and following treatment. Dodging the dreadful judgment, many don't tell their friends and family about their illness or avoid medical treatment altogether. 
They die sooner than they should. Their deaths come with less love, support and caring than they deserve or would otherwise get if their diagnosis was for a less stigmatized disease. And not everyone stopped smoking. The new stigma was especially effective in helping people higher in the socioeconomic ladder to give up tobacco. Those with more money, contacts and education had more practical means to help them quit. They could get smoking cessation drugs from their doctors or attend classes paid for by their employers. In contrast, smoking rates remain as high as ever in the lowest income sectors of the wealthy nations. These more vulnerable citizens are now the primary target of powerful tobacco industry desperate for customers. In lower income communities in the United States, for example, tobacco billboards are larger and much more plentiful. There are more stores selling tobacco, more points of sale promotions touting discounts on price and greater social pressure to smoke. The act of smoking itself also provides a way to cope with stresses of being at the bottom of the social and economic ladder. It helps to stave hunger, soothe stress and make people feel more connected to others sharing their problems. At the same time, smokers in these communities have morphed into the primary target of extremely aggressive, shaming, anti-smoking public health campaigns. Embreeding the self-perception that smokers are useless and ignorant, self-efficacy, the sense that we can do anything to change, is undermined. So instead of helping the lowest income smokers to quit, the anti-smoking campaigns might solidify the very behaviours they are trying to discourage. As yet, public health has absolutely no plan for how to solve this wrinkle in the anti-smoking success story. And the lack of effort to fix it reminds us that in public policy, some lives and some deaths matter more than others. The lives of so-called stupid smokers are viewed as less worthy of public attention and investment than those of so-called blameless middle-class women with breast cancer. Smoking offers a powerful parable for how using stigma as a public health tool to change social norms can go terribly wrong for those who are already at the margins of society. Understanding how and why this happens has been a major motive for our program of research over the last decade. But it wasn't tobacco that first spurred our quest to unravel and expose the ways that stigma and global health can derail each other. It was a simple news item that crossed our desks in 2007, covering what was, at the time, a new approach to improving sanitation in rural villages in Asia. It was called community-led total sanitation. Now, community-led total sanitation provided a very low-cost solution to the challenge of getting people to build and use toilets. The intervention was designed to trigger disgust towards those who defecate outdoors or don't wash their hands, thereby nudging social norms to make people want to be more sanitary. The goal was certainly noble, since diarrheal disease is a major childhood killer and better hygiene saves lives. And early studies of community-led total sanitation showed fabulous results. People who were shamed were frantic to build new toilets regardless of the effort or cost involved. What stunned us about community-led total sanitation was the explicit use of shame as a tool in, pub in a public health intervention in such clearly vulnerable communities. These interventions were being rolled out in the types of places we have worked as anthropologists throughout our entire career. Careers, impoverished communities with no running water and no sanitation infrastructure. And having lived with people in poverty, we knew that they battled constantly to be respected as dignified and valued members of society. And we knew too well what the negative consequences of shaming interventions could be. In our five decades of combined fieldwork studying the human dimensions of health struggles, we have often seen how shame is emotionally devastating. In our work on family planning in small Micronesian villages in the remote Central Pacific, we heard stories of women desperate for children shaking as they explained their failure as wives and daughters because they couldn't get pregnant. In our studies of water insecurity, in dusty South American informal settlements, we had listened to fathers. They had dipped in humiliation as they told us they felt ashamed because they couldn't bring home enough money to buy water for their families. Observing in schools in the United States, our hearts went out when we saw children being cruelly bullied by classmates because of their body size. Shame dramatically undermines human dignity, our very sense of our basic worth in the world. But shame itself, while dreadful and painful, was not what concerned us most about community-led total sanitation. It's what happens when you mix it with poverty and other marginalised social statuses, like being old, female, gay, transgender, HIV positive or an undocumented immigrant, to name but a few. Then, shame quickly and easily cascades into stigma. As this book makes clear, it is stigma that is truly health damaging and deadly. And so, we were acutely aware of the possible risks inherent in community-led total sanitation just because it had the potential to create and amplify stigma. So we asked each other incredulously, didn't these global health campaigners see how easily these new interventions could go awry? Hadn't they thought 
that they might end up heaping more stigma on the poor? Weren't they afraid that the marginalised, the powerless, those without the capacity to push back would be most damaged in their wake? And how could they embrace these risks when they didn't have solid evidence that the intervention itself made people healthier over the long term? Had nobody warned them that stigma born of shame could be a global driver of illness? It seemed the answer was no. And so, reading about that one case of community-led total sanitation training in Bangladesh opened a whole new focus area for our work together. The community-led total sanitation approach, using disgust and shame to encourage healthy handwashing in poor rural villages, has a thoroughly explicable, sensible and sound scientific basis, rooted in the massive success of those anti-tobacco campaigns. Once we started digging, we found so many other examples of how using stigma as a tool to push health behaviour change had backfired, like the early days of the HIV-AIDS epidemic in the 1980s when there were calls for forced quarantine to protect the so-called good people from the so-called bad ones. At that time, blame for the disease was placed squarely on those living in ways deemed dangerous and morally wrong, like drug users, men having sex with men, and sex workers. The stigma against people most at risk of HIV helped fuel the epidemic. Understanding the dreadful social damage that being diagnosed would inflict, people acted sensibly. They avoided HIV testing. Millions of lives were lost as a result. And the story repeats over and over again with different diseases in different vulnerable groups. It's all right there in front of us, but mostly invisible because no one is looking at it. Recent campaigns to promote child health across the globe, for example, provide a very particular image of a good mother as someone who breastfeeds. By promoting this as a social expectation, mothers who formula feed their children can feel anxious, guilty, angry, uncertain, and enchained. These feelings of stigma mean those unable to breastfeed because of health issues or rigid work conditions don't seek or get the information they need on safe formula feeding, and their babies are more likely to get sick as a result. But a larger issue remains. Even as sanitation scholars are starting to document the harmful, stigmatizing effects of community-led total sanitation, and child and maternal health advocates are beginning to push back against some of the breast is best messaging. Identifying the problem after the interventions are over is simply too late. The damage is already done. And our ability to fix things after the fact is especially stymied when working in communities already made vulnerable by poverty, disease, or political marginalization to begin with. So at one level, our book presents a basic necessary message for anyone working in health watch out for stigma. It's a basic fundamentally unrecognized driver of what happens in health. Yet many health practitioners barely even recognize it even within their own work. In the field of global health, where many of the most important efforts are happening in the poorest communities, the implications of this blind spot easily escalate. Many of those who choose healthcare as a profession care deeply about the people and communities they serve. And because stigma especially attaches to disease, health professionals are in a unique position to see challenge and redress it. Those who work in global health are often particularly and intimately aware of the challenging conditions in which many people may struggle to live every day. Doing business as usual, believing at the very least that they are doing no harm, can mask damage being done. We wrote this book to help make stigma more visible. The hope is much of that unintended damage can then be better anticipated, planned for, and so avoided. People who work in the health fields are always in prime stigma territory for one basic reason. Disease is a particular magnet for stigma exactly because stigma tends to attach to what matters most to people. Illness, the suffering that disease brings, is a fundamental part of the human condition that we are all afraid of and desperately want to avoid. It speaks to our deepest fear and anxieties of pain, helplessness and death. Thus, all healers and caregivers who work intimately with people who are sick are situated at the front lines of stigma. But this book isn't intended just as a conversation with people who manage disease or disability every day. We humans are a universally, inescapably judgmental species. Our readiness to stigmatize is part of that. And so it invades all our lives all the time. We struggle daily to avoid the many possible labels that we believe will make others reject, avoid, and otherwise discount us. Things like crazy if we have mental illness in our family or slutty if we have a history of herpes or have had an abortion or multiple sex partners, the label of lazy if we have higher body weight, or hopeless if we have a disability, or weak if we smoke, or out of control if we drink, or unmanly if we are impotent, or unfeminine 
if we're infertile, to name just a few. Discerning how stigma works and what to do about it is relevant to everyone who cares about what others think, who wants to belong and be valued, and seeks to treat others fairly. In other words, it's relevant to all of us. Amber and I are medical anthropologists. Medical anthropology as a field has produced outstanding ethnographic work that is relevant to understanding health-related stigma. Some excellent case studies are provided in Paul Farmer's analysis of how structural stigma creates additional vulnerabilities around HIV AIDS in Haiti. Cassandra White's analysis of leprosy in Brazil. Marsha Inhorn's work on women's experiences with infertility in Egypt. Charles Briggs' exposition of how stigma shaped a cholera epidemic in Venezuela. And Jao Biel's detailed study of living with disability in Brazil, as well as Sarah Trainer's study of patients with high body weight in an American hospital and Joan Ablon's action-focused work on impairment disability in the United States. Each of these is an enriching case study to be read as a companion to our more synthetic treatment here. Also, Irving Goffman's earliest work on people with mental illnesses confined to asylums, which later came to utterly define the construct of stigma for many social scientists, is also recommended reading. Yet even if these scholars have produced some really detailed, sophisticated individual case studies of the damage done by stigma in the last several decades, and most is focused in some fashion on disease and disability, anthropologists have engaged surprisingly little in general theory building around how stigma and health collide. While sociologists and psychologists have long embraced that stigma is a key defining concept in their fields, anthropologists have not. Even so, our conclusions in this book of the broader damage that stigma does in the context of global health will likely be no surprise to anthropologists particularly the idea of stigma as a profound form of human suffering. The most basic but broader question of why humans stigmatize is one our field has had much to say about. This is because stigma is a complex cultural phenomenon, tightly tied to our social norms, that is, our shared ideas of how things should be. Public health provides a rich context to advance this needed agenda, if only because, as noted, almost all stigmas are rooted in some fashion in our fears of contagion and disease. The comparative integrative approach we take in this book, placing the ethnographic cases in wider picture, is designed to fill this gaping hole. In the social sciences, there is still significant conceptual confusion about what stigma is, what it does, and especially what we should do about it. On the one hand, political economic analysis shows how the stigma power of disease can be harnessed institutionally to control and exploit people and communities. Stigma can be used as a tool to block access to quality health care and the basic resources like food and water that are needed to support health. This creates deadly cycles of illness that reinforce the existing institutions and power structures. In this view, properly formulated global health efforts are solutions to the problem of stigma the means to break the cycle of poverty and illness and allows people to thrive. On the other hand, evolutionary-minded scholars highlight the connection between the human tendency to create social and physical distance from things deemed as disgusting, improper, or undesirable. This approach highlights the need for adaptive strategies to avoid contagion in our hypersocial species. In this view, stigma is the solution to the problem of global health. This more biological orientation also helps explain why stigma exists even when there seems to be nothing ostensibly gained. That is no stigma power. And between these two views lies the uncharted territory that must be navigated to create truly just, sustainable health. And this is the terrain where this book is purposefully situated. By integrating and balancing these two quite different perspectives, in the context of what we observe on the ground as anthropologists who work in the global north and south, the goal is to dig deeper and create a new and globally oriented synthesis to understand stigma in the context of global public health. We are reaching towards an understanding of the intimate, pervasive, powerful and significantly more complicated and often unrecognized relationship between stigma and health. Thank you both so much for joining the Sausage of Science. Alex, welcome back since you have interviewed with us before and Amber, welcome for the first time on the Sausage of Science. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. And we always start with the same question for everybody. And Alex, you have answered this in a, in a previous interview with you. So we're going to focus on Amber with this one. Basically, how you got to where you are. What's your origin story in anthropology? What got you involved? Uh, what was your journey like? Yeah, I love it when you ask people this question. When I've listened to other podcasts, I learn things about people. I've written lots of papers with it. I never knew. So in that spirit... I'll go back to the beginning. I grew up in a place called Miramar that's on the Miami-Dade County line in Florida. And I grew up in a very homogenous environment where we had really strong social and sharing networks that organized everything from hurricane response to childcare. But it wasn't totally idyllic because my parents 
who were both active in their unions and were atheists. And my mom was a feminist and my dad was a vegan. They didn't quite fit in in this community. And they always told me never, ever to talk about any of that to people in our community. And even though these are people that I loved. And so early on, I think I was really profoundly puzzled by how social structure and networks interlock with cultural values and norms. And then later, I was very fortunate because in Florida at that time, we had an amazing public school system. And I tested into a countywide advanced program and went was bused to the school with this very we started college classes in sixth grade and that was the first time that i was introduced to socioeconomic inequality having gone from a very homogenous working class community i was suddenly the poor kid and that was a whole new set of experiences that kind of enriched my understanding about how these networks of sharing and reciprocity work and how cultural values fit into them. And so when I got to the University of Florida, I was very fortunate that my first semester, I went to Russ Bernard, who's an anthropological methodologist. I went to his office and I was like, I'm going to be an anthropologist when I grow up. And he was right, let's do this. And so he, I've been collaborating with him for 24 years and one of the most important relationships in my life and one of the reasons I believe so much in mentorship. And so he introduced me to Chris McCarthy. Um, Russ taught me to write and to think and to be an anthropologist and Chris taught me to do research and do run big projects and do analysis and so at that time I mean obviously I had these interests in inequality and social networks and cultural values but I knew I was really interested in economic deprivation and at that time in the sort of mid 90s it was not in style to be thinking about economic dimensions of cultural beliefs so what people today are calling materiality was super out of style, right? And so I wanted to find a research question where the importance of material elements of how people exchange resources couldn't be denied, right? Like you couldn't say, oh, it's just perception or it's just an interpretation. It's like, no, people need this thing or they're going to die. So that was water. Mm. So I just want to point out for our listeners who may not be familiar with all these names, Ref Bernard literally wrote the book, the big big fat book on field methods in anthropology and is the expert in, and now Amber is co-editing field methods with Russ, I believe, yes? Yes. Journal field methods and uh, Chris McCarty is expertise is in social network analysis and has written literally the book on how to conduct social network analysis, which is huge and increasingly important methodology in anthropology. And as I was telling Kara right before we started, you were one of my teachers for the text analysis course at the NSF-funded QualQuant thing. And I have this, I fear, distorted memory of you telling me what you study. So we need to clarify lest some misinformation goes out. I guess I didn't know what water security was. And so I have this conjured memory. Or you told me you were studying pirates, water pirates. I'm thinking it's the former. You may have completely made up these pirates. <laughs> I could have told you I study water pirates, um, and it would be true. Okay. And I have studied informal water vendors, and in Spanish, one of the ways they call those are piratas. Aha. Uh-huh. So technically, I could have told you that I studied water pirates. So is that an illegal form? Like when you say informal water vendors, is that actually illegal within the governmental system or looked down upon? So I would them as unregulated. Yep, there's uh, some smuggling going on. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to relate the pirate thing really hard. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just. I, I would say that yes, these are um, communities that were settled without any legal um, permission to be settled, right? Informal settlements. They do not have permission from their municipalities to get water service. And so somehow they need to get water. And so a business that people create is to get water without permission and to sell it to them without supervision. Okay. Interesting. This is, I mean, so all around the world, you see this, you see it in the United States as well. And it's a, a way that people cope with living in these unregulated zones. I think you're being generous to my memory, but, 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 um, because we were conjuring up like cartoon pirates, basically stealing barrels stealing water, of water yeah. on water. 
<laughs> exactly. Uh, the idea is that I want people to be able to say legitimately that I study water pirates, and I'm just bending over backwards to make that to be. It's great branding, if we're honest. Uh, so water insecurity was very early on in your career. Uh, it kind of started out that way. Uh, Alex, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you got involved in water insecurity. Uh, by jogging behind Amber. Mostly. So uh, I first met Amber, gosh, 15 years ago when she was a postdoc. Uh, she was a postdoc at Arizona State University where I was, a, I just arrived as a full professor at the time to develop new health anthropology courses and degrees. And she was working on a project that she called the Ethnohydrology Study, which was part of her postdoc looking in the Phoenix area and how people uh, we're thinking about water, and I thought, here I've ever heard. I wish I'd come up with that. And the second best thing is to just follow along behind her for a while and see what <laughs> And 15 years later, we've been working together on that project. It's now turned into the Global Ethnohydrology Project, not just the Phoenix Ethnohydrology Project. And so all my forays into water research, which, you know, make up a good chunk of my portfolio now, are really just following Amber's lead and learning from her in, her, in, what, in what is really her area of expertise. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I can bring a different set of skills to that with my human biology background. So, but mostly I just do it for fun <laughs> um, and for camaraderie and all the other really good reasons that we start learning new things when we do research. And I would just jump in and say, although most of my work has been focused on water, I'm interested in bigger theoretical questions that Alex and I share, like how unjust and inequitable institutions produce resource scarcity and how mm -hmm. that impacts human health. And so one of the things that I think both Alex and I share is, a, is that it's good to have strong expertise on a topic, but if you keep other topics in the mix, it enriches your theoretical view of the mm -hmm. field. And so um, just the way that she kind of comes and works with me on water, I go and work with her on obesity. And she's always in the lead in those projects. But thinking about obesity and thinking about body norms um, and bionormalcy enriches my work on water. So obviously, Kara and I work pretty closely together, and we have a similar interest in each other's work. And so for the sake of our working relationship, and I think on the side of asking people about their research, we, we have a... a a sub-series called Hackademics, where we're interested in hacks for succeeding in academic academia. And I think your your collaboration is enviable. Like having someone you can work with and have that sort of camaraderie and be inspired and have fun with while doing serious research is all of our dream. So I, I just wondered then if this can segue to the how you came to be working, how you how you do this to produce a book and what that was like and how that came together lazy, crazy, disgusting stigma and the undoing of global health came out of us kind of talking across our different projects um, over many years. And actually, and this is part of where the, the form of the efficiency and interesting part of the way we collaborate is, is that it really was, Amber was the lead author to begin with in the book. And at some point, it just made sense for me to take over. So it's hard to kind of explain where it started and where it finished. Um, because it really was like a two halves of the same brain operation. Uh, but it really was an attempt to think about what Amber was just talking about, the really the big picture things that link what the two of us had kind of been doing in our own careers that had kind of come into the shared space where we'd been thinking together about a whole range of issues and then thinking about where that took us next. And in this case was really thinking about what it means to be socially accepted and socially rejected, how global health as an enterprise fits in with that and how that in turn a sort of social phenomena feeds back into how global health is done. I guess to broaden it out just a little bit, because you two seem to work very, very well together and maybe any thoughts you have about fostering such a really excellent academic research collaborative relationship. Alex, you kind of talked about it a little bit where you just decided to follow Amber along with her work and then Amber has learned so much about the obesity that's informed her work. But do you have any kind of like step back thoughts or tips about fostering such a wonderful research and we might be overstepping, but a friendship as well, uh, and how that works. Thinking about this conversation we were going to have, 
Um, Alex and I were talking about this academic marriage question, right? Because mm. sometimes people ask us about our academic marriage and it's always awkward, just like when someone asks you about the person you're married to. Um, and so I was like, we should just embrace the awkwardness. So I think Alex will jump in. But one thing that's important is that Alex and I both have family structures that are very similar. So mm. she and I are the primary income earners for our household. We both have spouses her husband was a competitive sharpshooter and my husband was a soccer player and they both decided to retire to be the main people raising our kids um, when our kids were little. I think we lean into the academy in the same way, right? And that helps because she understands where I'm coming from and I understand where she's coming from. I think also we have very complementary skill sets because mm -hmm. I'm trained as really as a cultural anthropologist and she really is much stronger on biology and demography and so always when we're coming to a question we know right away that we're going to look at it differently we'll have different tools to bring to the table and that that's productive hmm. yeah Alex what do you think so I always feel that we've just been so lucky mm. uh, to be in an environment where we were able to develop um you know our collaborative style over many years and a structure that was accommodating to that and actually rewarded it you know in terms of the particular department we were in and the people we were working with but it really is very precious and I think I could easily have gone my whole career without being able to get in a situation where I had people that I really could trust as collaborators to the extent that I do with Amber and we have other people in our team as well that we have you know similar collaborative relationships even if they're not quite as intense I think one of the things that's a bit different about ours is actually the level of intensity so we have two books coming out next year a book coming out this year we I think so we've kind of got to the point that we're writing and multiple authored articles through the year that you know, we're variously working with a, in a whole array of different teams. So it's a level of complexity of the collaboration that's kind of unusual because we're not even in one lab kind of working on the same problem. It's scattered across many different projects. So, you know, for me, I feel very lucky with the arrangement. It's kind of interesting comparing it to a marriage. It's similar in some ways in that you are really become good, at, your, your fortunes become good together after a fashion and that becomes beneficial for everybody. But in another way, it's, an, it's also an efficiency mechanism in a way that a marriage is not, right? I would not be able to run my marriage the way that <laughs> I manage my relationship with them. I wish I could. <laughs> yeah. But now, it's an easier thing to engage with. But one of the things that binds us is that we have quite different sensibilities on some levels. I'm actually the softy and she's the tough one, which people <laughs> always get completely inverse. They read that wrong. But we have very, very similar core values and are very strongly um, held. So, you know, we really are in the same place on scientific integrity. And I think that makes it possible to get through. You know, there's always going to be things you have to deal with, the two of you. When you're doing that level of productivity on that many different projects, there's always things that come up basically every day that require you to trust the other person's decision on your behalf. And I think the fact that we share those really core values about what it means to be a scientist, what it means to be a scholar, what it means to work with communities, what it means to work with students, the responsibilities, where we're prepared to cut corners for efficiency and where we're absolutely not. And the fact that, you know, we kind of understand each other means that we can be really, really efficient in making decisions for each other. Part of why we can, we can move so much stuff forward is because we have a real shorthand way of decision-making but we can talk every single day pretty much in order to keep the machine going. Amber? We have an enormous amount of trust. When things go wrong, I know implicitly, like, well, Alex wouldn't have done that. So the problem must be somewhere else in the process. Or an opportunity comes up and I'm like, oh, well, Alex would be okay with doing this. So I'm going to say that, you know, you should check with her, but I think you should put her in this role. Um, the other thing I always think about is that between us, we've written, I mean, we're writing four books and we've done at least 50 papers. So I always think of the, like the two of us are a full professor between ourselves, mm. right? That person, like other friends joke like, oh, is that person junior too? I'm like, no, I think she's somewhere in between me and Alex. <laughs> um, and that person has sort of like her own sensibilities and, and contributions in my mind. One of the most interesting things to me of late to observe about our working relationship is we started off in completely different places in the academy, right? So when I started working with Amber, I was on the search committee that hired her, I believe. And then I was her director for eight years in the school. 
so I was mentoring her from all the way from when she was from a postdoc, mm. actually, all the way up through assistant professor, through associate professor, and to full professor over that time. It was a much shorter time for her than most people, but still, you know, a good chunk of her career. You know, I was very much in the position of being much more senior. Now she really is completely my peer, the same rank that I'm at at the universities. And in the process of me moving out of administration, she's now much more connected at the university than I am. So it's kind of like a lot of our power dynamics have really shifted Hmm. considerably in the last couple of years. And we've survived that. Now really fun for me to really be able to just watch her kind of fly by me. And so I'm kind of excited about what happens next. I just want to reinforce how good of a point that is. Mm. And it's one that I learned the hard way and that I'm trying to be conscious of all the time is in the, those collaborations, the power differential generally means that one person has more urgency about certain things than the other, and that can really sour things quickly. So mm. it's impressive that you've worked through that and have, have developed yourself to that position. And one of the the very recent collaborations and one of the reasons we are doing this interview uh, was about water insecurity, which kind of culminated during the uh, HBA meetings this past year uh, for the Pearl Memorial Lecture that you gave, Amber, about water insecurity. We want to promote the special issue that just came out this past month. And so we were wondering with the symposium that you organized with Asher Rosinger over at Penn State, if you could tell us a little bit about that feature article that you wrote for AJHB, as well as your talk for the Pearl lecture. Yeah, and just, I mean, I, Alex and Asher were the organizers, but to just give a little background, because I think it might be interesting to people, is that we know Asher because we tried to recruit him as our postdoc, and he ah. turned us down. Yeah. Gasp! <laughs> no, we're we're like, no, 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 so we'll find some other way to sucker you in. <laughs> Yeah, but we do have this philosophy that when people come to us as prospective PhD students or prospective postdocs, they're in the discipline with us forever. Yeah. And whether they come to work with us or whether they're collaborators in different ways, we're all working on the same scientific problems together. And it's exciting to have, you know, these lifelong collaborators. And so Asher went on to the CDC and then to Penn State. And so he and Alex organized um, the symposium and they asked me to give the Pearl Lecture. And that was very exciting for me because um, if anybody is working on water, you'll know that I labored in obscurity for many years because water was really not a hot topic in anthropology and certainly not in biocultural anthropology. So when I was being trained, there was a lot of work on irrigation, but really not any work that looked at water and human health with a couple of important sections like Linda Whiteford and Barbara Rose Johnson, right? And so um, a lot of the time I was kind of having to come up with conceptualizations and measurements and theories all on my own, you know, and I always knew that biocultural um, scholarship was sort of like the holy grail. Like if we could just get this research question on the radar of biocultural scholars, we would be able to make very rapid advancement theoretically. And so I think Alex, to me, was so important to moving into that space, right? Because Alex is so well connected with the biocultural world. And so our collaboration helped us begin to open up these questions with people like Asher and other, Sarah Young, others who've been on this podcast, right? And so to have the opportunity to sort of speak to the HBA at a time when there was a critical mass of scholars, um, Barbara Fabrata and Amanda Thompson are starting to work on water, right, was, was awesome for me. Very, very exciting. Yeah, I see those increasing connections where folks that we've associated with other areas, food security, for instance, or developmental adaptation, I think this is the nature of my initial misunderstanding, is I had no concept for what water security even meant when you first introduced it. And now you guys organized this symposium at HBA. There's tremendous groundswell of of folks doing this important work. And as Kara pointed out, before you guys got on, and you guys can speak to this more with the increasing population size of the world, this is going to just get more critical. Yes, it definitely seems to be a long-standing hot topic. In our previous conversation with Alex, we actually ran out of time. We wanted to talk about some of the, the work that was then coming out and has now come out and is also in this book, where in the broader scope, you're looking at the impacts of stigma across a variety of different contexts. And one of those was critiquing a model that maybe in anthropology isn't super popular, but I know in evolutionary psychology and human behavioral ecology, the idea of the behavioral immune system that people behave in ways to avoid contaminants has uh, been in vogue. And you critique this model and did some exceptional cross-cultural 
uh, data collection to do this. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that and what you found. So, I mean, the behavioral immune system idea is basically that uh, the way that humans organize themselves provides protection against disease, particularly if you have mechanisms for figuring out who to stay away from. Um, so there's the disgust response, but there's also these sort of social boundaries that can be set up when people get pushed into categories of the types of people you shouldn't go near. That is um, through stigma. And, it, you know, obviously it makes a lot of sense in small-scale societies that you encounter people and you've got to figure out whether it's safe to be around them or not. You know, so a reasonable idea point of view, the behavioral immune system makes a lot of sense. So it's not really the idea itself. It's the application of the idea into health programming that we're particularly concerned about. It conceptualizes stigma as a positive force or a potentially positive force within health, uh, designing health interventions and so on. And Even just an acceptable cost. Right. So that's where the problem is. And we've been really trying to demonstrate through our work and that of other people that are doing ethnographic work like ours, that the cost is potentially extremely high and always borne by the people at the bottom of the social ladder or the economic ladder. You know, the cost runs downhill very quickly. Mm. So it's not just a practical problem, but it is. It makes, you know, it's highly likely that interventions are less likely to be sustainable over the long term if they're socially causing new social divisions, but also just from a moral perspective, if there's any chance that it's, particularly if the costs are accruing only to the most vulnerable sectors of societies, then, you know, then that's something you have to think really, really carefully about before you invoke that as a strategy. I was just going to say, you could see this with Ebola and now again with coronavirus, right? Mm. It's playing out very clearly. Yeah, no, that's a really good point and one we could unpack, but I wanted to draw attention to one of the examples in your book, because although there there have been some already some some good pieces about stigmatizing people just of Chinese ancestry mm-hmm. because of coronavirus, you you wrote about data from Mozambique where you found one third this is in chapter right out of the gate in chapter one, one third of the people didn't agree that toilet use would improve community health standards. And I think most listeners would actually find this astounding, but then by going in, some of the public health efforts of stigmatizing people find that not everyone agrees and the tactics used are ones that might surprise folks and are, are going to be, I guess, anathema to a constructive course of action, to put it mildly. Is that correct? Yeah, so I, well, I think one thing is just to appreciate that uh, these community sanitation efforts are trying to get people to not practice open defecation because it is a sanitary issue, right? So particularly in the more crowded areas get, it's, it's not good to have people stepping in other people's feces. It's not good to have, you know, kind of households and so on. But on the other side, you've also got to think about or at least consider how people think about the efforts to get everyone to use a toilet and not everyone in the world thinks that a toilet is a good idea and with good reason. So, you know, there's a Mozambique example in the book where we were working on a USAID project and around coastal adaptation, aka climate change and climate change adaptation. And they were trying to get people to build elevated toilets um, so that when floods came, um, when the flooding, flooding happened, it wouldn't just spread feces all over the place, which is obviously, you know, a major contaminant risk. Really, for an ethnographer, one of the starting points of that conversation is what's the deal with open defecation? Why are people Mm. doing it? And in this case, you know, in the Mozambique case, uh, people would walk, you know, a third third of a mile to a mile every morning and every evening down to the mangroves, and there they would do their business. And it was a very social and pleasant time of the Mm. day. You walked down there with your friends, you did your business, you walked back. It was a really nice constitutional, you know, constitution experience for people. And, you know, the sea comes in. And so the idea, you know, people had this idea that this was not just clean, but also pleasant and enjoyable. And if that's your headspace about how you defecate, sitting in a small square smelly box by yourself mm-hmm. is not anywhere near the same experience um, for a human being. So then um, when, when I was working in, in Kiribati in Micronesia many years ago, there was a set of aid folk that came through and built toilets 
in the middle of the atoll. And this is an atoll where you've got, you know, the water lands is just feet below the surface. You know, on that particular island, people would go down at, you know, to the, the, the lagoon side of the island and they would do their business below high tide and then the tide would come in and take it out. And they were really distressed by the idea that mm-hmm. you would put all your poop in one place and just pile it up. Um, and I think they could see, like, they know how, they, they put a hole in the water all the time. They know where it is. So that people were really grossed out by the idea. And so, I mean, you know, uh, and I think, you know, Amber can maybe talk to this a bit more, but toilets in themselves, if you look at them logically, while a great solution to sanitation issues, are kind of a, a disgusting concept. Right. Amber, tell us about how gross toilets are and piles of poop. Yeah, well, if you think about the sort of cultural meanings constructed around toilets and piles of poop, you can see that it's a difficult thing to sell to people, really. (laughs) (laughs) How do you? I mean, when it comes to these public health initiatives of trying to institute some form of toilet or just centralized location so that it can be removed, I mean, how often are they actually successful? And the ones that are, what do they do right? compared to the ones that aren't successful? Great question. So that's actually one of the big motivations that we had for writing this book, because there is a not very old approach called community-led total sanitation that has been started in India and has been picked up all around the world. And what they decided to do was that they didn't need any investment. They didn't need to spend any money. All they had to do is go to poor communities that didn't have toilets and convince them how disgusting. And then they'd want to build the toilets themselves and use them, right? So you can imagine how this would appeal to the international development apparatus, right? All you have to do is pay some outsiders to go into communities and convince them that they're disgusting and then they'll do everything. Right. It turns out that you can go shame poor people into building their own toilets, even when they have to take out loans that they can't afford, Um, even when they are using equipment that is not durable and breaks down and creates a huge disaster. You can convince them to do that. Right. And so the the off the the initial success rates for this intervention were very, very high. Right. And because it's so common in international development not to study the long term implications of these Mm. interventions. You didn't see what anthrop- like everybody probably listening to this podcast already knew was going to happen, which is that the toilets would be poorly built, right? they would break down, there'd be no money to fix them, there would be horrible, enduring social consequences for people who couldn't afford to adhere to what became the socially accepted norm, and I'm not even sure that would be using the toilet, but maybe having a toilet, looking like you use a toilet, whatever, right? Um, and so ultimately, data started to come out that indicated that this was the case, but when I first saw it, I carried it over to Alex's office and I was like, oh my God, have you seen this? It's just like what's happening in obesity intervention, mm-hmm. right? In, in terms of turning around people's socially located suffering and blaming them and trying to use that um, as a low cost intervention, right? Or if not a low cost intervention, an intervention you can use to extract resources from the person who is receiving the intervention. Mm-hmm. So it's like the public health apparatus doesn't have to spend because you can shame and stigmatize someone into spending and spending and spending on exercise equipment and diet food and mm-hmm. so forth. Um, and so that was when we were like, oh my gosh, we have to write a book about this. Not to take the focus away from obesity, uh, because we talked about it a good deal with Alex, but another part of your book that I think is highly relevant, especially to our audience and part of our academic series as well, is the stigmatization of mental health and seeking help for mental health. And I feel like there's a huge a nice long string connecting each and every single one of these things of you say that our efforts have largely failed. And by our, I mean the public health apparatus and destigmatizing and treating mental health, kind of your thoughts on why it has failed and maybe how we can move forward. So I think I'll invite Alex to jump in in a second, but I think mental health treatment is very different from sanitation and from obesity because that is a realm where people have known for a long time that stigma does harm. Right. Mm. And, and they've been trying a lot of different techniques to implement destigmatization versus in sanitation and obesity, where people are still trying to leverage stigma as a behavior change tool. Right. So, in a way, a men- mental health is a much better example to look at. But what we do know from looking at all these different destigmatization techniques that people have used, like renaming the disease or exposing people who don't have. Um, a mental health conditions people that do, that they don't work as well as you might think. That that stigma seems to be more durable than practitioners want and that we would hope. But I would say that you can see incredible progress on stigma 
over the last 100 years and even over the last 50 years. So there, there is more of an uplifting story there. And I think Alex and I, after reading a huge amount of literature, kind of settled on the idea that activism and advocacy seem mm. to be the most effective forms of addressing stigma, which is a great story because it means that people who are carrying the burdens of stigma really should feel empowered to push back against it because I think it's the best way we have of, of decreasing stigma. Alex? Yeah, and you know, I'm not one that's normally impressed by st- celebrities and celebrity power, but this is, you do see that it's been enormously helpful to people in destigmatizing uh, mental health conditions and making people feel that they know and already accept. It makes it much easier to think about the mental health condition as not attaching all these other negative valences to it, right? Mm. So, you know, some of the people that have been, you know, Carrie Fisher, for example, is one of my big heroes she was just completely honest from as soon as she was diagnosed about what it was to live with bipolar disorder and completely open about it uh, in a way that was I think really empowering for a lot a lot of people it opened a lot of conversations that couldn't happen before that and you have you know quite a number of other celebrities that have been really really helpful in this by self-revealing actually in ways that I I wouldn't have expected until I really started looking at what all the options were and which ones seemed to have the most impact over time But even when you look historically, you do see that stigmas come and go and come and go. For example, if we do a program sometimes where we go to London with students and look at the history of health in the city, London going back to medieval times, and you see that when there's a certain religious orientation where people are thinking about the relationship between people and God, in one way you have leprosy as kind of rises up, you get this sort of spikes in stigma and social exclusions. And then as kind of ideas about the nature of sin change, then the stigma goes down. So you can actually look back also and see these huge historic waves and stigma around specific conditions going up and down. So just because it goes down doesn't mean it can't go up again. Mm. Stigma can also be employed as a, a power lever. Sometimes people benefit greatly from the imposition of stigma. And whether you are uh, the, the massive weight loss industry, obviously, is one of the big winners right now big pharma obviously mm. does very well on this but you know just in terms of governments and what they have to invest change is based on these public ideas about who's worth investing in so follow on to what alex was saying as stigma uses political tool there is a section in the book where we write about how leprosy was leveraged in the colonization of hawaii as a political tool hmm. and that's why i think it's important to point out that having high profile celebrities for example using advocacy is a tool but that tool is most effective when it's linked in to a boots on the ground movement of activists who are seeking to shift political power Right. So I would say advocacy in tandem with activism is very necessary. And so when we look at, you know, what are the most incredibly successful destigmatization campaigns? And we look, for example, at ACT UP and HIV, right? Mm. We find that those activist communities are absolutely essential. Tease us a little bit with numerous forthcoming projects. Do tell. What, what are you working on next? Right. Once more into the fray. <laughs> so we have three forthcoming books is that correct amber together yeah yeah oh and then we have other ones yes that, uh, that um amber has other projects as well so our together projects include we have one book that is coming out next year maybe with new york university press yes that is three-year ethnographic study in unnamed high-profile hospital system leading nationally leading hospital system in which uh, we work with a fantastic ethnographer called Sarah Trainer to track the experiences of people going through weight loss surgery and mm-hmm. he was talking about people with extreme body weights that lost large amounts of weight and we were really interested in how stigma shifted for them as body weight came off um, both in terms of the experiences, their, their own experiences of stigma, you know, directed towards them, but also in terms of self-concepts of stigma. Um, and we found out it's a, it's not always um, a happy ever after story. And we kind mm-hmm. of delve into what that really means. And then the second book, Amber, do you want to take that one? I would love to. Yeah. And just to follow up on what Alex was saying about that one book, what's so interesting is that all these people that we worked with who underwent bariatric surgery, they're all like, I would do it again. Yes, it has changed my life to lose all this weight in really positive ways. But it's also true that the physical impacts of the surgery last forever. And that knowledge of what it means to make a social transition from a highly stigmatized community to not 
is something that people can never shed, right? And that's mm. a fascinating part of the story. Okay, so the other book is one that is called Bad Info Cultures. And we are four ethnographers, five ethnographers working in four sites. So it's that same team of me and Alex and Sarah Trainer, who's at Seattle University, with two additional colleagues, Cindy Sertzerithran, who is a linguist at ASU and works in Japan, and Jessica Hardin. So we're um, looking at fat stigma, essentially, and, and the experience, the social construction of fat and diets. Um, in four communities that fall along a continuum from highly fat stigmatizing in Japan to, you know, historically characterized as fat loving and small. And so that's a project we have just finished. We've just put under review the first draft of the book. And, we're mm. about that. and that's forthcoming with Toronto University Press. The other book, which is taking up a huge amount of my time right now and has turned out to be a much more fun project than I ever imagined, is our effort to rethink introduction to anthropology. So we've been in a space working for a number of years to kind of shift anthropology into a very outward gaze in working on multiple collaborations with non-anthropologists, kind of what I've always referred to as transdisciplinary anthropology. And uh, we've got to the point of doing that for a number of years and there's there's a lot of us where we work at ASU working on the same sort of meta project of rethinking how anthropology is done in a forward-thinking way and we've kind of turned the lens a little bit inward again and thinking about well what does that mean for designing and imagining and enacting um, a a new form of anthropology that's much less insular and is part of a much wider conversation but still has a strong sense of self. And we kind of decided maybe one of the best ways to do this was to go back to brass tacks and the brass tacks is introduction to anthropology. So we actually mm. are working with a really fantastic, fantastic team, which includes Norton, who are the largest independent publishing company in the US as a partner. So we have a linguistic anthropologist, Cindy Sturt-Streetheran, an archaeologist, Kelly Knudsen, a physical anthropologist, a biological anthropologist, as they are now, Christo Janowski, Amber is a cultural anthropologist, and me kind of as the integrative sort in the middle of all of those, to write a textbook. And it's kind of setting an agenda for what we, what we, where we think anthropology really needs to go to re-engage mm really positive way as a field. I think you know there remains a lot of, we think, um, unnecessary worry and concern about what anthropology offers to the world as a major, as a field, as a scholarly inquiry. So we're really trying to rethink, you know, what are the core values that we need to get to? What does that look like? How can we present that in a way that's really um, accessible and meaningful for, for today's students? Because today's students, and I know, Karen, Chris, you both teach undergraduates, so you understand this, they are so different than students 10 years ago. And if you look at most of the anthro textbooks, basically being rewritten and rewritten and rewritten over a 30-year period, a lot of them are in their 15th, 16th, 17th edition. And the whole way that we view our field, our relationship with communities, our responsibilities to diversity, our role as activists has so changed in that time that we just decided it was time to just basically toss it, toss it out, start over fresh and rethinking. So it's turned into a, we meet every Friday, the five of us meet every Friday for three hours to write together. And it's turned into the most fun three hours a week I am learning so much about a field that I thought I knew mm. it turns out I knew almost nothing because there's so much fun stuff to learn and that's become quite a highlight of a project so I thought that was going to be something we were going to do very work down in the background but it's kind of emerged as one of the most fun things we're working on for me Amber I don't know about you I think you know we're in in anthropology we're in a moment of reckoning right mm. and we're taking a serious look at um, some of the, our history and some of the practices that we inherited. And much of it is, is dark, right? And I think an important element of this project is that that's not our day-to-day -day experience in our lab and our group. We're really proud of the work that we're doing. We think we've figured out ways to engage with some of these historical difficulties that are really successful. We have a, an extremely diverse group and that's working. And so we, I think we're super excited about sharing that you know, we don't have to think about how anthropology could have an impact on the world. We are having an amazing impact and our students are doing incredible things. And so to just kind of, you know, share this new approach.
I love hearing everything you just said because those are the exact reasons why I've entirely abandoned a textbook in my Intro to BioAnth class. And so I really do look forward to a textbook that does a much better job at covering the field today and what it does today in everyone's life. So that just sounds great. Um, this is all very, very inspiring. Since you both mentioned it as a fun thing that you've been doing, uh, we love ending our, our interviews with what other fun things do you do? And it can be related to work, so work-life interaction is great, but what are you reading, watching, doing for fun, hobbies, whatever you might like to share with our audience? I want to be very honest with your audience, which is I have kids, I have two kids, and between the scholarship I'm doing and raising my family, that is all I do. When I was on the tenure track, my one life goal was to get tenure and not get divorced. And I was just so pleased that I achieved that. You know, and I'm kind of still in the same space. Those are the things that I care about and that's where I'm putting my time. And that's the thing is we want the honest answers because that's, I think, the most important thing for everyone listening to this podcast to hear. So thank you for being honest. So, and Amber's always said that her kids are a hobby. So she does have a hobby and it works really well for her. So I've got two kids as well. My kids are a little older than Amber's, a few years older. You know, my oldest is going off to college this year. Mm. So I've been able to, you know, I'm in the same situation as Amber. I was working really hard for many years and trying to really focus on the things that were most important to me and my family. Especially stepping out of administration a couple of years ago and suddenly, you know, some of the people that came out of grad school with me are starting to retire. Uh, luckily, I came out of grad school very young, so mm. I'm, not quite, I'm not near retirement age, but it kind of made me think maybe I need to be starting to work now so that 10 years from now or 15 years from now that I really have an easy transition from work, you know, at some point in my life, hopefully my husband will still be there and it'll be us, but the kids will be off in their lives and eventually I'll be going a bit potty. Amber will get sick of me or whatever happens. So I need to be thinking about rebalancing. So that's been a very, very active process for me in mm. terms of, you know, now I actually read actively as part of a book club. Okay, so mm. I do box on tape when I'm driving around, but you know, that's a step in the right direction. Yeah. And I've started, you know, exercising every day. I do Pilates five days a week at a studio, which is the privilege of seniority and a full professor's salary. But that gives me a lot of balance. And just trying to think the other thing I'm really excited about, but I haven't learned how to do yet, is the notion of vacation and travel just for fun. I travel a lot. So does You do Amber, travel a lot. But, yeah. the, you know, the idea of like how to even design travel just for fun that isn't either work commitments or family commitments is something I aspire to and am working on actively so yeah for me I, like I think I'm just at a different slightly different life stage at Amber where I'm thinking I need to start laying some groundwork but I love my job and I like Amber you know I really enjoy family life as well and it is almost enough and I have these close friendships with people at work that make you know, that give you mm. that space where you can be yourself and say what you think and be frustrated and be in sheer joy that are so important to that work-life balance and I think I'm just super lucky that I get it at the office I've been in other jobs where I didn't where I really needed friends like really needed people outside of that environment because you know when you're in a toxic work environment you mm. can't it out. but if you're lucky enough to be around people you like all day I think it is easier to balance you getting joy on both sides it's also true that we overwork we we have to support each other and the other people in our squad in rebalancing all the time this is literally how we started the podcast before you both came on of i am totally sick because i have been overworking but we like what we do we don't have to be doing it so I, th and I think that's a really good message. You're both living what we consider the dream in mm -hmm. terms of productivity, doing work you enjoy, working with students in constructive ways and, and valuing your, your family time. I can't, I can't think of a better life. We feel very, very lucky with the situation we're in in our lives. Very lucky indeed. Well, how can folks get a hold of you guys? I, obviously, they can go and buy your book. What a, if they want to apply to your grad program, send you a tweet. What is the way to get a hold of you if you care to be gotten a hold of? Yes, we, great question. So to turn it back to water, we are working very hard to build an international network of water scholars. Mm. Um, the one that we have is National Science Foundation funded. Anyone can join. We welcome collaborators from anywhere. It's called the Household Water Insecurity Network. It has a website where you can sign up. We're also on Twitter all the time. The other thing that we have is a series in John Hopkins University Press for books that are about water. And so we would love for people to send us their proposals and we would love to publish their books. And then 
we are on Twitter. We have a blog on Psychology Today. Uh, Alex, what else do we want to say? This was the Christmas project, the Christmas break project. We both have our own websites now, alexbrewis.org and amberwoodage.org. So that's exciting. Amber's much more active on Twitter than I am. She's the social media maven. I... I'm a blogger. You love to blog. What's your Twitter handle? A Wittich. And Alex? You tweet every now and again. I have witnessed it. I'm your Brewis underscore Alex. <gasps> yeah, because Amber actually set up my Twitter account for me. That's why she knows. Well, we <laughs> want to thank you both for being such engaging guests, writing material that's easy to discuss, and for, for joining us for a nice, nice, fun, long interview today. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks so much. This has been The Sausage of Science with Chris and Kara, and I'm one of the associate producers, Caroline Owens. This episode was made possible by the support of the American Journal of Human Biology and the Human Biology Association. Be sure to check out the American Journal of Human Biology special issue on water insecurity. Please like us, rate us, share us, and let us know who you'd like to hear next. Thanks for listening.